held um, Tuesday, October 29th at 9.30 a.m. It's going to be at Bayside Church in Citrus Heights. That's uh, October 29th, Tuesday at 9.30 a.m. And there's going to be a burial, burial service, um, a military burial service after that at 12.30 at Sacramento Valley National Cemetery in Dixon. And there'll be reception following uh, the burial, and that'll be probably in Dixon. Um, I know that many of us um, here at Veritas, and I speak for many of us, when I say that we're going to sincerely miss uh, both the words of wisdom and the fellowship of, of, of Brother Bill, um, I'd encourage all of us to seek ways to reach out and to, uh, to minister in any kind of way we can to Denise and the rest of Bill's family. Um, we do have an online meal coordination system set up. If you need information on that, please contact me. I'll get you plugged into that system. But whatever assistance you can provide to Denise would be really appreciated, I know, by her right now. Um, you know, while I'd suggest that those of us that are um, mourning with those that are mourning, especially Denise and the rest of Bill's family, um, I hope it wouldn't minimize Bill's loss by observing that the last time um, uh, Dan Reiselberg and I saw Bill was actually just here last Sunday after church, and um, we chatted about some various things. We had actually had a quite a uh, lively debate on Saturday at the men's fellowship, so I wanted to try to make sure Bill was still okay about our debate, but... Um, you know, Bill's parting words to both Dan and I as, as he left last Sunday was, see you next Sunday, Lord willing. And um, Dan and I kind of nervously laughed, but, you know, in hindsight, it, it really reveals a lot about, about Bill and his heart. Um, Bill really was aware and probably more aware than a lot of us and as aware as we really should be of the fragility and the shortness of our lives. And, and as, well, as well, he had a, a vital awareness of the sovereignty of God. And he knew exactly in whose hands um, our, our lives rest. So um, I look personally to forward to a heavenly reunion with Bill, hopefully at a much future date, but we'll see. And, um, and, and I pray in the meantime that we will all live, each of us, with a, the same conscious awareness of the shortness of life, the brevity of life, how our lives really are like chaff, and, um, and that we would basically then, with that wisdom in mind, um, trust our lives um, in, in all aspects unto God's sovereignty, that same sovereignty and that same faith in God's sovereignty that uh, our brother Bill exhibited. So I wanted to make that announcement. If you have any questions afterwards, let me know, and I'll fill you in on the details. But um, that's the story on Mr. Mundy. So I'd like to welcome you this morning to the, uh, the second in a series of sermons um, regarding the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be going verse by verse to the Sermon on the Mount um, this is the second in four or five months. Uh, if, if this continues out, it may, God willing, take 10 years, right? But, um, but this is the second in a series and um, where we're basically looking verse by verse at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, when I was, Eric, basically, when he asks people to preach, he says, you know, what I first want you to do is select a body of Scripture from which you're going to preach because the teaching and the preaching here is scripturally based. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a tough assignment. So I did some digging and, and some searching, and very quickly uh, the Sermon on the Mount jumped to the top of the list. And it's primarily because a lot of the, the people that I follow or that I read that produce commentaries um, really spoke highly of, the, of the, the words in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think one of the quotes that best captures the essence of the Sermon on the Mount are these words by D.A. Carson. The more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant life draws me like a moth to a spotlight, 
but that light is bright, so bright that it sears and it burns. No room is left for piety that is nothing more than veneer or sham. Perfection is demanded. Jesus says, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, I know I'm not as well-read or as intelligent or as eloquent as D.A. Carson, and, and you probably aren't as well, too. I think we can all agree that D.A. Carson's words are very challenging and also inspirational. Um, personally, I found the study of the Sermon on the Mount to be challenging, to be life-changing. Um, it's required quite a bit of thought, meditation, and reflection on what the words say. And I'm hoping that as we go through these series of sermons over the next 10 years, that uh, you'll find them challenging and, and as blessing and as, um, as fulfilling and fruitful as, as I have found them um, in the same way. So last time we were together, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, right? We looked at the overarching story or the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. We tried to also identify the key structural modules or components or firewalled off areas of which the Sermon on the Mount is composed. And it's important to both understand the overarching story as well as the individual sections because context is really, really critically important in the Sermon on the Mount. The overarching story and structure informs the details and the details inform the overall arching structure. So it's important as we look at the Sermon on the Mount to have in the back of our minds an idea of both the overarching theme, the big components or blocks or modules of text and then as we get into the details, we'll see how all these pieces basically fit together, um, woven as one piece of, 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 cl piece of cloth. Um, it's vital to understand the big picture. So um, with that in mind, um, the last time we were together, we saw the Sermon on the Mount is composed of four major structural modules. There's the first module that basically is the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are a short segment of text and they really serve as the front door to the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll see in a greater detail about that in a, in a few moments here. The second module is a call to greater righteousness. And it describes Jesus' call to all the people, the greater righteousness is actually required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this second module, this call starts with some reassurance. Jesus tells them, you know what? Don't worry. I didn't come to flip over the law. I'm not here to like totally throw everything out. Um, I came here to fulfill the prophets, not to overthrow them. And then Jesus follows that reassurance with a challenge. And that challenge is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The, so we've got the first module, the Beatitudes. Second module, the call to righteousness. The third module is the majority of the text of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you've ever heard the Sermon on the Mount, the majority of the, of the language regarding the Sermon on the Mount, people bring it up, you know, do not lust, do not uh, judge others, right? Judgments are really a big thing. People will bring up these commands, and they really do perform and um, compose the majority of the sermon itself. But um, that's not all that's there, and it's important to remember that. So we've got the Beatitudes, the Call, the examples that are the most of the, of the Sermon on the Mount itself, and they're case-specific examples. And then the, the Sermon on the Mount overall closes by talking about, with a stern warning of end-time judgment for those that do not hear the Sermon on the Mount and also those that do not do or act in accordance with the Sermon. So that's kind of like a big picture of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, opening with the Beatitudes, moving to a call to greater righteousness, 
providing lots and lots of examples of specific case studies on how to conform and perform according to the Sermon on the Mount, and then closing with four sober warnings. Last time we primarily focused on um, module number three, the examples of greater righteousness, right? And these, this module is typified basically by um, a, a form of structure or a structure of speech, and Jesus would say, you heard it said, A, B, C, but I say X, Y, Z. And in each case, basically, Jesus raised the bar. You might remember some of these examples from before. Um, for example, uh, Jesus said, not only is adultery forbidden, but so also is lust. Uh, to Jesus, basically, and we, we actually read those commands this morning in our congregational reading, um, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery. For Jesus, basically, um, lust was just as bad as adultery. The thought itself was as bad as the action. Jesus does not allow a firewall between our actions and our deeds and our thoughts. And in the same way, this also applies to our words. Um, Exodus 20, whatever says, you shall not murder. But for Jesus, murder wasn't just physically killing your brother, but simply speaking a sharp word against your brother or anybody else in Jesus's mind was just as bad. In other words, the thought, the thought of murder, the thought of actually somebody cuts you off and you might say something, right? That, that thought is just as bad as the act of murder itself. So in each of these cases, you see Jesus raising the bar. And, and as uh, D.A. Carson mentioned at the beginning, Jesus again calls us to more than a veneer or in a sham or an external compliance with the law, but rather Jesus is calling us to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, calling for an alignment, a perfect alignment of heart and action. So remember last time we talked and um, we, just, we pointed to the Beatitudes as being the answer of this greater righteousness, right? Um, the examples in the Sermon on the Mount, the call for greater righteousness, this great, greater righteousness, this higher bar that Jesus sets basically calls for an important change. It calls for a change of heart. There's no 12-step process to godly perfection. You're not going to basically say, okay, I'm not going to do these 10 or 12 things that Jesus commands us to do or not to do in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why, that's why, this reason we can't achieve these things on ourselves. We can't tilt a ladder up and climb this ladder to achieve these goals. That's why the Beatitudes are so important. The Beatitudes are the doorway to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes define who we are at our heart, who our heart attitude is, who Jesus has actually made us to be. It's the Beatitudes where Jesus defines this source of greater righteousness. So the Beatitudes where Jesus provides the wisdom and the insight and the contrition and the compassion and the, and the repentance that transforms our hearts so that we're able to do what he's called us to do. This heart change is what we're going to be looking at in closer detail this morning. And this heart change is what we see described in the Beatitudes. And as uh, Tom shared with us this morning, we're looking at the first four Beatitudes. And um, they compose basically verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6 in Matthew. But before we get started, um, I know I'm going to need help. And I hope you would need help as well, too, for God to quicken your mind. So let's... If you join me together in prayer before our God. Jesus, thank you for not leaving us as orphans. Thank you for giving us your holy word, 
which is alive, active, and sharper than any double-edged sword. May your word be at work in us dynamically this morning, judging our thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Jesus, thank you for providing your Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who convicts us of sin, and who directs us into all righteousness. May your spirit quicken our minds, cause us to comprehend our naturally sinful state. But most of all, God, may your spirit open our eyes to the good news of your gospel, your remedy, your salvation, and your hope for all those who wish to be reconciled to you and who long to be conformed, perfectly conformed to your image. May we all understand and apply your word this morning, and may it be all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned a minute ago, we'll be looking at the first four Beatitudes in uh, Matthew. Uh, they're found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And I've got the page, number, uh, page 759 of your pew Bible in the chair in front of you, or you'll find it in Matthew as well. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, in a, lot of, in a lot of cases, the Beatitudes are kind of like the, uh, the red-headed stepchild of, of, of the Sermon on the Mount, right? They're kind of the overlooked, unappreciated part of the Sermon on the Mount. But um, it's unfortunate if we do that because, in, in, in fact, the Beatitudes themselves really form the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the typical focus, again, of the Sermon on the Mount is, is on the commands, do not be angry, do not lust, do not take oaths, do not retaliate, do not judge, right? The typical focus in the Sermon on the Mount when it's trotted out is, is the law. And the Beatitudes focus upon something bigger and more important and more foundational, the transformation of the heart that leads to the fruit of doing. So the change in the heart impacts and affects what's happening in our actions and our deeds, but they're linked together, they're integrated, they're not separate. You've got less of a separation between the two. So in the Beatitudes, um, Jesus describes what this heart change looks like. And this in the Beatitudes, um, where we see what the spirit-filled Christian life really looks like. And so as we look at these Beatitudes, I think I would ask that, I know I examine my own heart, I'd ask that each of us examine our own heart basically, and see, do I conform to these Beatitudes and then the question is, you know, what must I do to conform better? But we'll look at that further as you wrap up at the end. So if you please turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin our study of God's Word. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, again, you'll find um, the uh, verses at the bottom of page 759. So at this point in the overall book of Matthew in chapter 5, um, Jesus is still really popular. And when Jesus first started out, he kind of had a a sheltered, kind of quiet existence um, up north in the Galilean area, and he kind of like played it, played it down low, right? Kind of spoke to small groups of people. Didn't really, uh, he really wasn't, um, he wasn't on Twitter, he wasn't on Facebook. He didn't really go, he didn't really go large, right? He was kind of playing it close. At this point, Jesus has just begun his, his uh, public ministry, and he's beginning to announce things that the truth of the gospel more and more. And consequently, and as well, he was healing um, the sick and the diseased in great numbers. And so as a result, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he had great crowds following him wherever he went. Um, because these great crowds followed him, 
when he wanted to have, at this point in time, a separate audience with his disciples um, and speak personally to his disciples, basically he had to do something. He climbed a mountain to basically leave himself away from the cloud, crowds. And if you look at uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 1, you can see this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the audience, in this case, primarily could be identified as his disciples, right? There were crowds there, but they were basically left behind when Jesus ascended the mountain. And then also ascending the mountain might have, for those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, you might have echoes of, of um, Moses att- uh, ascending the mountain, coming back down with the tablets, uh, Mount Sinai, descending with the tablets of stone. So this, this verse echoes of that as well, too. However, Jesus isn't Moses. He's actually, you know, the better Moses, basically. But again, if you picture our setting, this is basically a sermon given by Jesus to a small group of his closest um, followers and disciples up upon a low mountain, basically. Before we jump into the Beatitudes as a whole, I think we need to first define the word blessed. Um, Some Bibles, some translations define blessed as being happy. And while happy actually is a somewhat accurate definition of of the Greek word makarios, which, which ties to it, um, happy really doesn't quite exactly do it justice because if you're like me, um, happy's kind of like a, a, a passing emotion, right? You're happy. I'm happy one day. I'm eating a, a Yazo bar, mint chocolate chip ice cream bar, right? I'm happy one moment, and the next moment I have a flat tire, and I'm not happy, right? And, and, and Makarios, the, the blessedness that we're looking at here um, is, is different than that. It's more complete. It's more holistic. Um, blessed, yeah, blessed actually is a better translation of it, but um, it's actually perhaps a bit more than blessed as well. Um, I spent way too long trying to find a good definition of, of what makarios, uh, this word blessed, really means. Probably the best definition I found was by J.R. Stott. And this might help you. It helped me, but it still doesn't really completely get it. But I think it'll get us halfway down the field. So it might help provide some background for the study as a whole. Since each of these Beatitudes starts with blessed is the man who, right? So this word blessed is important. Here's how J.R. Stott defines blessed. Nevertheless, it is a serious, misleading to render Makarios as happy. For happiness is a subjective state, whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. He's declaring not what they may feel like, happy, but what God thinks of them and on what account they are, they are blessed. So these blessings are not just feelings of happiness, um, but, they're, but these blessings are, and they're not also, they're not feelings of happiness and neither make the very important um, mistake not to make. Um, these are not ways to earn God's, God's favor. It's not like if I do these things, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I mourn, if I'm poor in spirit, if I'm meek, it's not like if I do these things, basically, I'm going to earn God's favor and therefore earn entry into heaven. It's really flip that around. Really, these, these, in these blessings, basically, it's God declaring who his people are, who Christians really are. So th- this is a definition of who we are. Those of you that are born again by God, the, the Beatitudes describe who we are. And a lot of it, actually, when we look at this, we'll see that it's actually not our work at all. It's, it's all of grace. It's all of God. So with all of that background in mind, let's uh, dive into the, the first beatitude. The first beatitude deals with the poverty of spirit. 
And really, it's the doorway to the Sermon on the Mount. And this, this first beatitude is critically important because it really defines who we are as Christians. Look with me at, uh, at verse 2 and verse 3 in Matthew. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is poverty of spirit, right? What is poverty of spirit? Well, I'd offer up that it's true of all Christians. It lays the foundation also for all the Beatitudes that follow. They're linked like a chain. They're progressive. They build upon one another, and they work towards a, a final endpoint, which brings everything else together. Poverty of spirit is the key requirement. You've heard, pov- well, for both salvation as well as sanctification. Before you or I can be filled, we must first be emptied of something. We must be emptied of self-confidence. We must be emptied of boasting. We must be emptied of pride. Neither you nor I nor anybody else will seek a savior for salvation or for sanctification until God first reveals unto us our deep, desperate need. Probably... I don't know, one of, the, one of the better ways to define poverty of spirit is to look at it as, as the opposite of what you and I see in the world all around us today. It's kind of like the opposite of today's cultural values. Poverty of spirit is really a sober assessment of our true spiritual condition um, with God and also apart from God. Uh, I would say uh, many of us could, without thinking too hard, the spirit of our age is humanism, and it's, it's, it's um, exhibited and demonstrated and colored by self-confidence and, and self-sufficiency and self-esteem and, and pride, right? In, in all these cases, basically man and, and the activities and the, the aspirations and the accomplishments of man are, are built up and made high. Uh, the first at this and the first at this, right? And in each of these cases, man is made big and and God is made small, or God is ignored, or, or God is disdained. The spirit of our age, humanism, it suppresses any inconvenient truths of unrighteousness or sin or shortcoming. Sin in current contemporary culture is, 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 uh, is vulnerability, and, and it's, it's downplayed or ignored or, or put down. Um, we see humanism in the spirit of the age all around us, right? I, I I walk to Labu. Well, actually, I don't get coffee at Labu. I get Le- coffee at a place next to Labu downtown. And whenever I go to walk there, there's a light rail track I have to cross. And this light rail track has these huge light rail trains that go by. And there's a big banner on the side. And it says, Hello, Human Kindness, right? And it's an ad for um, Mercy Healthcare. And they're a Catholic health organization, right? And are they talking about how good, merciful our God is? No, they're talking about Hello, Human Kindness. Well, I don't know, right? Are we really, is humanity really kind by nature? You know, apart from God, even with God, I mean, oh my gosh, hello human kindness, right? Disney movies, they encourage us to believe in ourselves. You know, our our kids in grade school, all the teachings about self-esteem, right? We've got protests and demonstrations where we demand our human rights. We're all, ah, we need to like support ourselves and it's not fair and, and I'm entitled to this, entitled to that. And then of course, we've got pride parades that are always celebrating the riches of human potential and human wisdom. All all these things basically depict the spirit of our age, and if we're not careful, I mean, it's in the air we breathe, in the water we drink, and in the food we eat, right? And without realizing it, we can can subconsciously adopt that mindset and that that lifting up of man and and the ignorance and the, 
the playing down of, of the, the value of, of our God, basically. So what is this poverty of spirit that Jesus calls us to? It's really, frankly, it's the opposite of humanism. It's the opposite of pride. Um, this poverty of spirit really is, in this case, basically, we've got nothing of our own. We bring nothing of personal value to God. It's not me looking at my fellow human being next to me, right, and saying, well, you know, I'm better than Joe over here, or, or I'm glad I'm not, not like the sinner over here. I'm comparing myself. I'm looking at God and his perfection and his justice and his glory. And in respect to that, I realize that I'm bringing nothing to the table, nothing to actually warrant any kind of reward or recompense by God himself. Poverty of spirit would be uh, defined as uh, having no faith in ourself, no self-esteem, no pride, nothing of any value with which to commend myself before a holy, righteous, and, and, and just God, basically. If any one of us, um, and this is pretty common in society, at least it was for a number of years, to, to, to um, trot out the Sermon on the Mount and hold that out as like the, uh, the measure of how mankind can be, even as a humanistic standard, right? Do not judge, you know, lest you be judged yourself, right? How many times is that quoted? That's in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We can't put it, if we think we can put into practice any of the requirements in the Sermon on the Mount through the works of man apart from God, we have not yet become spiritually bankrupt. Until you or I realize, until we really realize, we're totally incapable of doing anything in our own strength to do what God has called us to do. We have not understand the first beatitude or the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. This first beatitude calls for poverty of spirit. It calls Christians not to believe in ourselves, right? This is, shouldn't be like a newsflash, right? Not to believe in ourselves, but to believe and trust in God. Neither you nor I can do the work of God's spirit until you or I basically look not to ourselves, but to God himself. So once we go through the door of poverty of spirit, once God takes us through the door of poverty of spirit, once we begin to realize how short we fall of what God has called us to do, we're set for the next beatitude, that of spiritual mourning. If you look with me at, at verse 4 in chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So it's in this beatitude where God shows us how Christians respond once God has opened our eyes. What is spiritual mourning? When we see our sin, we mourn. Aware of our personal sin, our personal spiritual bankruptcy, how short we fall, we mourn. But it's more than just personal mourning, right? If we see national sin, we see injustice around us, we see just the craziness and, and the, the sharp elbows of the world, right? When we see that, we mourn. When we see the political battles, we mourn. When we look around us at the world, and we look at the condition of our world, we mourn. We mourn personally, but we also mourn publicly. We mourn nationally. Um, but I would suggest also, sometimes we mourn socially, and perhaps that's the most painful example of this spiritual mourning. What does this spiritual mourning look like? So probably the best example that I can run across um, remember the Apostle Peter? Remember the time when he was warming himself at the fire 
together with all those that basically had taken, gone with Jesus to when he was being tried um, before Pilate. And he was seated with them together around a fire, warming his hands. Three times Peter was accused of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And three times Peter denied that accusation. The scriptures tell us, Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, Peter, and wept bitterly. Peter wept bitterly. Why did Peter weep? Why was Peter weeping? What caused Peter to weep? I've spent some time thinking about that. I know my buddy Dan over here has been thinking about it as well, too. Um, I'd suggest that, and I'm not sure I've got the total answer, and I, I'd encourage you to reflect on that as well, too, but I would suggest that Peter was weeping because something had died. Um, as Peter recalled Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, Peter was remembering his vow to Jesus, right? He had vowed to Jesus something very adamantly. He said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, right? Why did Peter weep? Because something had died. Peter had lost his innocence. Peter had lost his personal self-righteousness. Peter had lost his self-respect. At that moment, Jesus revealed to Peter his poverty of spirit. At that very moment, Peter had grasped the depravity of his heart. The Apostle Peter, the one who vowed to die before he denied Jesus, denied Jesus three times. At that moment, Peter became face-to-face -face with his spiritual poverty. Peter wept, and Peter mourned. God had brought Peter to the awareness that he had nothing to boast of before Christ. Peter had been taught by God that his only hope was to throw himself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. Abased of any pride or confidence in his own works, Peter was forced to solely rely upon Christ's mercy and Jesus' works. Peter and his works had become seen and recognized as what they really were, insignificant. Jesus and his deeds had become glorified and lifted up. Okay, so we're not done with the second beatitude. For the second beatitude also contains hope. For it reads, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we come to the end of ourselves, like Peter, we weep, we mourn. But when we come to the end of ourselves, I've got good news for you, and so does this beatitude. They shall be comforted. You shall be comforted. I should be comforted. Why? Where does this comfort come from? Because at that point, when we realize how empty we really are and how deceived we were about ourselves and who we were and how much and how we would stand up for Jesus and how we would actually, you know, rely on our strength of our faith, when we realize how short we fall, we're forced to rely on Jesus Christ and him alone. Strangely, paradoxically, it's our sorrow and our mourning over sin that leads to our comfort. Without that sorrow, there's no comfort. 
this sorrow and mourning lead directly to the comfort found in knowing Jesus and relying on his good works. The Apostle Paul in Philippians echoes the same sentiment. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Okay, so you and I need to be careful though, right? Because even Christians can become proud, can become self-righteousness. If Peter and the Apostle Paul struggled with, the, with these sins, I think you and I could admit we would struggle with those same sins as well. But Christian, when God reveals to us our sin, as he did to Peter as well, we can confess and repent of those sins. And as we do, we'll find comfort, the comfort of Christ's righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness not of our own, that's imputed or given or granted to us by God's grace through faith. So the Beatitudes build upon one another. Beatitude number one, poverty of spirit, leads to Beatitude number two, spiritual mourning. And in that, while we mourn, we find comfort, the comfort of Christ's work and Christ's good deeds. Each Beatitude builds on the one before. Poverty and mourning lead to our next Beatitude, which is spiritual meekness. So Peter, again, is our poster boy for meekness, right? He's a, he's, he's a great example here again, because meekness is what you experience and I experience and Peter experienced as, as God reveals the depravity of our own hearts, how short we fall. This loss of faith in ourselves changes our mind towards God. It also changes our mind towards others, doesn't it? Not only when we're knocked off of our perch, we're not so quick to knock others off of their perch. Let's look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Beatitude number 3, spiritual meekness. What is meekness? My buddy, Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think puts it best. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. This makes him humble or her humble, sensitive, patient in his dealings or her dealings with all others. So some people um, would equate meekness with, we with weakness, right? And I, I really don't want to be a corny. Meekness is not weakness, but weak, meekness really isn't not weak. Is really not weakness, right? Um, biblically, meekness is a, is a form of strength. Um, the Greek word for, for weakness is often translated um, as long suffering, and perhaps long suffering describes um, this characteristic um, most best, basically, in in our day and age. Um, meek, long suffering or meekness describes a person who is patient, one who is not short tempered, one who is slow to take offense. 
So I mentioned earlier how I found, you know, studying these, these verses challenging, right? Um, each of us has things that push our buttons, right? Um, if there's one area I could have God develop more completely in me, and maybe this is true for you as well, is, is, is uh, long-suffering, is meekness. You know, somebody cuts me off, oh my gosh, I see red. It's absolutely crazy, right? But then do I cut others off? No. <laughs> yeah, I, prob- I probably do, right? Right? Am I slow to take offense, right? Does my sin cause me to be patient and long-suffering towards my coworkers and my, my, uh, my fellow members at church, right? Meekness is the opposite of self-confidence. Meekness is the opposite of boastfulness and pride. The Christian, the true Christian, the Christian that basically God has worked in, in his or her life like God worked in Peter's life, where you're just basically abased and wiped out, that Christian basically um, realizes our lack of self-worth and waits upon God's timing and God's work in every situation. I'm not so quick to speak up. I'm not so quick to interject myself into a situation when I realize that I'm frequently wrong, right? Right? I don't know about you, but that's what the Beatitudes are telling us. The Christian, you or I, we're not occupied with self at all. Meekness is a blessing of the Holy Spirit, not of human effort. And it's where we basically look for God and his timing and his provision to do the work and we're not out there protesting and demanding our rights, right? Did you notice, by the way, in the second half of that verse, who inherits the earth? So right now, if I was to ask you who inherits the earth, you'd think it'd be the strong, right? It's like the ones that you've got to have the, the biggest tank and the biggest nuclear weapon, and, and you've got to go to the gym the most, and right, you've got to have the biggest 4x4 the biggest four four truck, right? You've got to have all those. Notice that uh, verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not the strong. It's not the self-confident. It's not the proud, but the meek, who according to Jesus, are going to inherit the earth. Jesus tells his disciples, it's the spiritually poor, those who mourn over sin, those who repent, those who suffer long, that enter the kingdom of heaven, that enter and inherit the new earth. When this kingdom has fully arrived, the victory will go not to the self-confident, the boastful, the proud, the protesters, the ones waving banners. The victory is going to go to the meek, those who patiently trust upon God, rely upon God, and wait upon God and his timing. They know who God is and that he's in charge and that he's going to work things out in his own timing. Taken together, these first three Beatitudes, spiritual mourning, spiritual poverty, and spiritual weakness, reinforce one another. They place you, Christian, they place me, Christian, exactly where we need to be. Face down, prone before our God, utterly aware of how short we fall, short in any kind of way, remotely close to God, what God has called us to be. As we're aware of our sin, as we're aware of the distance we keep from our our just and good God, we're purged of the righteousness of our own deeds. Our hearts have been cultivated, turned up. The hard soil has been flipped over, and we're ready to receive the good news of Beatitude number four, spiritual provision, or what God promises 
to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look with me at verse uh, 6, Beatitude number 4. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. While all the Beatitudes are important, I, lo- I, love, I love you, honey. It's Pastor Eric. It's Pastor. <laughs> wow. My, my Proverbs 31 woman. Beatitude number four is the pivotal beatitude. While the beatitudes are important, this one's pivotal. Pivotal. When we know our inability like Peter, we become aware of the weakness of our vows. God provides the righteousness that we also desperately seek. When we're abased, when we're knocked low, when we're wiped out, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When I realize that I've got no righteousness of my own, I'm forced to look to Christ and his righteousness. And there, what do I find? Satisfaction. God knows our every thought. He is our sanctifier. Together with Jesus, we died, we were buried, we were raised again to eternal life. Our life is hidden inside of Christ. We're hidden inside of Christ's robes. His righteousness is our righteousness. When we need that righteousness, it's found abundantly there as we look and pray and come to Christ. As we're acutely aware of our need, we're satisfied not with our righteousness, but with Christ's righteousness. And from that, we give him glory and praise. Okay, those are the four Beatitudes, a brief recap. Four modules, right? Beatitudes, call the greater righteousness, examples or case studies, and warnings not to be hearers only, right? And we've got examples in module three we covered in more detail last, last month or week, a few weeks ago. This righteousness, this greater righteousness, is it external only? No. Internal and external, right? It's supposed to be an integrated wholeness God is calling us to. Lust is the same as adultery. A sharp word is the same as murder. Unity of heart and action is what God is calling us to. God is calling us, you and I, his people, those that are actually going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, to a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers, right? Tomb is full of dead man's bones, but they are white and clean on the outside. Jesus isn't calling you and isn't calling I to that. Those are not the people that are going to be inheriting the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes, as we just saw the first four of, they describe who's going to achieve this greater righteousness because God is working in your life and in my life and in your heart and in my heart, revealing to us like he did to Peter how short we fall, the depravity of our own hearts, the weakness of our own strength. He shows us and he makes us and he causes us to be poor in spirit, to mourn like Peter, to be meek, to be quick to trust God and slow to correct others. And through all that, basically, he causes us to come on our hands and our knees, flat on our face, repenting, confessing our sins, and seeking and finding his righteousness where we'll be fulfilled. It's the Beatitudes that show us how our hearts are changed 
not through our deeds and actions, but through God's deeds and actions, changing us, conforming us, making us like him. God who saved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins also sanctifies us, promises us, promises us to conform us unto his image, to make us like him, to put good works before us to walk within where we can glorify him. In closing, I've got a word of application for both non-Christians and for, and for Christians. If you're a non-Christian today, um, I'd encourage you to uh, pay attention to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where it basically tells us that not everybody who does the will of the Father or does good deeds will enter the kingdom of heaven because um, Jesus said he doesn't, he doesn't know you. And so if you're a non-believer and you have any kind of assurance that your good deeds are going to count for anything, well, my good deeds exceed my, my bad deeds, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says basically you have to know him to enter the kingdom. And their words are sober warning. For Christians as well, um, Jesus has words of warning. Well, God is sovereign in doing a good work in this age. He directs the means as well as the ends. And so you or I, we could actually say, you know what? God's got it covered. I'm reformed, right? It's, not, it's all by grace through faith. I don't have to do anything. You remember the last time we were together? I shared this, uh, this uh, inspirational but also convicting verse. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Two things, two aspects. One, the encouragement is, is that Jesus has said, we are a city set on a hill. We are light. We are like a city set on a hill. And that light is in contrast to the darkness to the world that's around us. And that's hopeful. But note, note also that we're called to do good works, that they may see your good works. It's, your, it's our good works that are giving glory to our Father that's in heaven. So even though we're reformed, even though that we know God has it covered, God directs the means as well as the ends, and you and I are his means. And so I would encourage each of you, each of us that are believers, to become the Beatitudes. And as we see God reveal unto us um, our pride and our lack of humility and our um, self-confidence, and as he breaks us by that, I'd encourage you and I'd encourage myself to seek out God in prayer, ask that God causes us to see better our spiritual poverty and pray to God to have us hunger and thirst after righteousness so that you and I might become more satisfied with his righteousness and count on him to make us more like him. With that, we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you this morning for helping us understand your truth as taught by Jesus in the Beatitudes. Thank you for opening our eyes to our sins, how we trust and worship ourselves rather than you. Thank you for opening our eyes to your free offer of salvation by trusting in you by grace through faith. 
Thank you for working in our lives by your spirit to change our hearts, to conform us unto your image. Thank you for causing us to be light, light that stands in stark contrast to this dark world, living and loving and acting in a way that testifies to your reality and to your nature. Most of all, God, we thank you this morning for causing us, for working in our lives by your Holy Spirit to live in a way that gives you glory. And may that glory grow evermore by your will and purpose in this world and in our lives. And we thank you and praise you for all these things. Amen.